The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. Let's go before the Lord this morning in prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for an opportunity to come before you now to seek your blessing upon this time. God, I thank you that you promise that when we do gather, you are here, that you do indeed love us and care for us, that you will provide for us and that you will bless us and help us to grow in you. Uh, Father, I thank you that, um, that as we gather, we can do so in spirit and in truth, and I pray that that is indeed what we would do. I pray that you would just be with not only us, but all the churches that are meeting today up and down the coast and around the world. God, that you'd bless them mightily, that your gospel would go forth and that lives would be changed. God, I pray for us that our lives would be changed as we interact now with your word. Help us to not only be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we are working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and today we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading the hearing and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So most of us are probably pretty familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. It often gets read, excuse me, at weddings and is well known for its description of love. So much so, in fact, that it is often called the love chapter. I remember when uh, Kim and I went to pick out our wedding rings a million years ago and we had in my wedding ring uh, engraved, hers was too small, which is kind of funny, we had in mine engraved 1 Corinthians 13 on the inside, and uh, the person at the, at the 
jewelry store, said, oh, the love chapter, because it's so well known for that. And this person, I don't think was a believer based on our conversation, but she knew what 1 Corinthians 13 about. Well, while this section does indeed deal with the topic of love, it's extremely important to also remember the context in which it is written. Chapter 13 is sandwiched right naturally between chapters 12 and 14, which deal with the topic of spiritual gifts. Thus, Paul is talking about love indeed, but he's also doing so in comparison or in relation to spiritual gifts. That's why I decided to name this message today the superiority of love, because such a title indicates that it's being compared to something else, namely it's being compared to spiritual gifts. So by way of review, remember we started chapter 12, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and Paul's laying this foundation of the gospel, talking about the church in Corinth, uh, the church in Corinth and some of the issues they're facing, and in chapter 12 he began discussing spiritual matters. He began to talk about what to expect of one who is led by the Spirit of God. And apparently the church in Corinth had come to place too much emphasis on ability and not enough emphasis on maturity. You see, they were prone to thinking that the most gifted men and women were the most mature. However, Paul wrote to them that the mature man is not the one with the most flashy gifts. Or even the one who seems to have the most amazing results from his service to King Jesus. But instead, the mature man is the one who, number one, glorifies God through proclamation. We saw this as we began to work our way through 1 Corinthians 12. The mature man is the one who glorifies God through proclamation, both with his words and with his deeds. He testifies to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Number two, the mature man is one who glorifies God through obedience. That he recognizes that there are a variety of gifts but there's one Spirit who gives those gifts. That there's a variety of ministries, but there's one Lord who is master over all those ministries. And there are a variety of results, of outcomes, but there's one God who's sovereign over His church. And then thirdly, God is glorified uh, when a spiritual man or a spiritual man glorifies God through kingdom-mindedness. That he serves not himself or his own interests, but he uses his gifts for God's glory and the good of the church. So we see this idea of he who is spiritual is one who glorifies God through proclamation, through obedience, and through kingdom-mindedness. And then last week, as we moved on in the, into the rest of chapter 12, we saw the unity of the church, the diversity of the church, and the necessity of the church. That we're unified in doctrine and purpose. That we're diversified in the gifts we've been given and the ministries we've been given. And that He he doesn't just give them haphazardly, but He gives them just as He desired. And that we all need each other. That every part has need of all the other parts. And we should honor every part without neglecting the parts that are most essential for the building up of the body in love. So as Paul talks about these spiritual gifts, these gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit, two believers, and every believer has at least one, as he talks about these spiritual gifts and the importance of understanding these gifts, he now talks about love in relation to these gifts. So with that background in mind, let's turn to our attention to chapter 13. The first point in our sermon outline is, number one, the necessity of love. Number one, the necessity of love. 
Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Paul writes, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. You see, the church in Corinth had become so focused on spiritual gifts that they lost sight of the greater importance of love. And Paul wants them to know that love must be the foundation for service within the church. He says, if I speak with the most eloquent words of men, or even if I speak in tongues, my motive, if my motive is not love, my speaking is in vain. It's like a noisy gong. By implication, the opposite is also true. That, that if my words are motivated by love, then they can be effective. They can be an effective tool for the kingdom. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, it's the ability to speak forth God's Word. If I, if I have that gift, and I know all mysteries, all the hidden things of God, and I have all knowledge, but my motive is not love, I am nothing. And again, by implication, the opposite is, a, is true once again. He says, if my sharing, or by implication, he's saying my sharing, my knowledge, my prophecy, that if they are motivated by love, then I can be used of God. And then he says, if I give all my possessions to the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, if I allow myself to be martyred, but my motive is not love, it profits me nothing. And by contrast, if Paul was to lay down his life for Jesus and want to see him glorified, the prophet would be great. And he knew that. He understood that. That there's great reward in that. This is the Apostle Paul talking. He doesn't say to the Corinthian believers, he says, he doesn't say if, if you speak in tongues or if you have the gift of prophecy. He says, even I, Paul, the Apostle, if I speak in tongues, but I don't have love, I've just become a noisy gong. If I have the gift of prophecy and I have all knowledge and I know all mysteries and I can do all these things, but it's not rooted in love, I, Paul, am nothing. He says, and I, Paul, even if I sacrifice everything I have, if it's not rooted in love, then there's no profit to me. So having seen the first point in our sermon outline, number one, the necessity of love, Let's consider the second point in our sermon outline, the nature of love. Number two, the nature of love. See, now that we know that love is necessary, it's important that we define it. It's important that we have an understanding of what love is. Because that which we see in our culture portrayed as love today is nothing like the description seen here in 1 Corinthians. You see, we tend to think of love as an emotion we tend to think of love as something that we, we have this, this feeling inside of us that just flows out of us. We talk about falling in love with someone. We talk about loving things. We love TV shows. We love food. We love motorcycles. And we do love motorcycles, right? We talk about how we love these things and it's an emotion. But that's not what Paul is talking about. In 1 Corinthians, you see, we tend to think of love as something that is conditional. 
Something that we can fall in and out of. We are constantly bombarded with false teaching regarding how we should love one another. What love looks like with our fellow human beings. You can hardly turn on the TV or the radio or connect to the internet without hearing about love. There's a reason that love songs are so popular on the radio, yet rarely are we offered a perspective that matches what the Scripture actually says about the topic. And the impact of that teaching, the bombardment that we have of that teaching about love, that false teaching, is huge in our culture. Think of the way a dad sits down with his son or a daughter and explains to them that they no longer love mommy. He says, what's always the next thing that follows? When a, when a father or a mother sits down with their children and says, I no longer love your mother or your father. And what's the next thing that always follows? They always say, but I'll always love you. Do you think that makes any sense in the mind of a child? Do you think that makes any sense to you? Does that make any sense at all? Naturally, the child is thinking, if you stopped loving mommy, why will you not stop loving me? And yet, that is normative in our culture. Maybe you were that child who had one or both of your parents say that to you. Maybe you've actually been the parent in that situation where you've said that to your child. Well, unfortunately, our culture has completely skewed our perception of what love is. So I think it's important that we understand the biblical definition of love, that we re-examine that. As you're probably aware, there are three different Greek words in the New Testament that are translated love in our English Bibles. The three words, as you probably know, are eros, which is used for sexual love. It's where we get the term erotic. The term phileo, the general term for love, and kind of used to describe brotherly love. It's uh, most, feeling, most typically used for feelings of affection. It's uh, where we get such words as uh, philanthropy or Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And lastly, agape, which carries the nuance of love for the sake of its object. Love for the sake of the thing or the one being loved. So it's not just love for myself or love for, uh, that, for what I get out of it, but it's love for the sake of the object being loved. And I think oftentimes we see this played out a lot in marriage where people misunderstand what love is all about. And if you've, if you've ever sat with somebody who's about to get married and they say, you ask them, why do you want to get married? And they say, because we love each other. And oftentimes what they mean is, I have these feelings of affection for this person. But they don't mean, I am willing to lay down my life for the sake of this person, this other person. I am willing to sacrifice myself for the benefit of the one I am loving. And I've done a little bit of premarital counseling. And you just want to provoke them. You want to try to convince them to, to see that it's not going to be like this forever. There's not always these warm, fuzzy feelings of affection. But instead, there's going to come a time when you say, I'm not getting anything out of this. I'm giving and giving and giving. And you go, congratulations, you now understand what love is. It's love for the sake of the one being loved. 
You see, all too often, what we really love is ourselves. And when a young couple, or an old couple for that matter, get married, what they often think is, they think, wow, this person really appreciates me. They love me. They don't think I want to lay down my life for them. Because they don't understand what love really is. They don't understand agape love. Agape love, according to this text, is love that is patient, love that is kind, love that is not jealous, love that does not brag, love that is not arrogant, love that does not act unbecomingly, love that does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, love that rejoices with the truth, that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That is love for the sake of the object being loved. It's the kind of love that will never, ever fail. You see, and it's not just that love is this feeling. Yes, feelings accompany those kinds of actions, but it is indeed an action. It's a commitment. And feelings should flow out of that commitment and be part of that commitment. It's not an absence of feelings, but it's not just feelings. Why? Because feelings of affection, phileo, may end. And eros may end. But agape love is eternal. That's why I've said this from this pulpit many times. And I'm just going to say it again just by way of warning. That if you come to me and you're married and you say, you know, we're really struggling in our marriage. And I say, What's, well, what seems to be the problem? And you say, we don't love each other anymore. Well, I'm, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, praise God! I thought this was going to be this really difficult thing for me to solve and that I'd have to understand, like study the Scriptures and figure out what my response is going to be. But that's easy. When you don't love each other anymore, the response is simple. It's repent. You don't love each other? Repent. Turn around. Stop. Change. It's time to start loving each other again. Because it's not about feelings of affection. It's about a commitment. It's about loving someone or something for the sake of the one being loved. You see, agape love is eternal. Agape love is perfect. So having understood the necessity of love and the nature of love, let's consider the third and final point in our sermon outline. And you're probably thinking, wow, he's moved really fast today, right? We're up to point number three already. And there's only three points. You know, the reality is this message is not hard to understand. And I don't know as though we need to spend an hour and a half talking about this message. Talk especially about love. We know what love is. You know, I could stand up here and try to expound on what love is, but it tells us in the text. It's patient. It's kind. It's not jealous. It does not brag. It's not, it has feelings of, of kindness. Feelings of not being jealous or sometimes doesn't brag. Love is these things. It is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. Love is clearly defined here. The tough thing is not in understanding it. The tough thing is in living it out. The tough thing is understanding this is what I am called to do. We're called to love our spouse. We're called to love our children, our families. We're called to love our church. We're even called in Scripture to love our enemies. This kind of love is what we are called to. 
So with that in mind, the necessity of love and the nature of love, let's consider the third and final point. Number three, the nature of spiritual gifts. The nature of spiritual gifts. And we're going to consider how they are both temporary and partial, or temporary and incomplete. Look at verses 8 through 13 with me. Starting at verse 8, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. You see, here we see that spiritual gifts are temporary and partial. First in verse 8, Paul says that love never fails, but, he says, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Paul is clearly contrasting spiritual gifts, which will all one day end with love that will go on forever. Love that is eternal. It's important to note, though, that he specifically mentions only prophecy, tongues, and the word of knowledge. I think he's saying that all gifts will indeed one day end, but he mentions these three in particular. Prophecy, tongues, and the word of knowledge. So it's important to understand these gifts, to review these gifts. We talked about them a couple of weeks ago. First, the gift of prophecy is the gift of receiving messages from the Lord and being able to speak them forth. These messages in times past, we think of the prophets, came sometimes as direct revelations from God, while today they come from His Word. So the gift of prophecy isn't the gift of being able to foretell the future, though some of the prophets did indeed do that, because that is what God revealed to them was the future. Instead, it is the gift of being able to receive, apply, and proclaim God's word or message from God. In other words, it's forthtelling, not foretelling. It's not speaking to the future, but instead speaking forth the word of God. So when you think of prophecy, you think oftentimes of maybe somebody who's a pastor who's speaking forth the word of God, or even a counselor who speaks forth the word of God and helps somebody apply it to their lives. Secondly, in this list, we have the gift of tongues. And tongues is the ability to speak in a language previously unknown to the person speaking in it. Speaking it. So it has to do specifically with language. And it might be a human language like Spanish or French. So I decide I'm going to go to Spain, I'm going to become a missionary, my feet touch the ground, and suddenly I have the ability to speak Spanish, a language that was previously unknown to me. I have a hard enough time with English, so it would be a miracle, it would be a a spiritual gift for me to be able to speak another language. Or it can also refer to a heavenly language, which was obviously uh, previously unknown to both the speaker, but also the hearers, and then requires an interpreter. So whether it's a, a human language or an earthly language, it's the ability to speak a language previously unknown to the person. And then lastly, Paul mentions the gift of knowledge. 
Notice that in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, he refers more specifically to this gift as the word of knowledge. This is more than just being knowledgeable, as we talked about two weeks ago. It's also, it's, it's so much more than that. It's also the ability to apply, the ability to communicate God's word, to teach God's word and correct biblical doctrine. This gift, the gift of the word of knowledge, correlates oftentimes with what's called the gift of teaching and some of the spiritual gift lists found elsewhere in Scripture. So, let's consider why Paul mentions these three in particular. Why does he mention prophecy, tongues, and knowledge? I think primarily it's because those were the gifts that were being abused by the Corinthians. And quite frankly, I think they are the gifts that are often abused today. What I mean is this. These particular gifts were being, and sometimes um, still are, were being exalted above other gifts. And Paul already addressed this in chapter 12. He said, all of the parts of the body are, poor, are important. He said, you need to honestly evaluate that every member of the body is important. But you also need to desire, earnestly desire the greater gift. So show them all honor while earnestly desiring that these greater gifts be seen among you. So Paul's already addressed this in chapter 12, and now this section serves as a reminder that even these three gifts, these three gifts which the Corinthian church held so high and with such importance that they would indeed end. He says, I want you to know something, church. You think that tongues and prophecy and knowledge are so important, but you need to understand something. These gifts will one day end. It's also important to note that the particular words that he uses to say they will end, are, they're, they're different. Let's look again at verse 8. In verse 8 he says, But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. And if there is knowledge, it will be done away. Scripture clearly tells us that these things will end, though not necessarily at the same time. See, it's no accident that our English Bibles use different words to say that they'll end. For prophecy and knowledge, it says they will be done away. And for tongues, it says they will cease. It's because the original Greek here is two different words. The word used for the ending of prophecy and the word of knowledge is the Greek word, Greek word katargeo which means to abolish or to do away with. Whereas the word used to describe the ceasing of tongues is pao, which means to stop. The biggest difference here is that the word katargeo is in the passive form, which means that something or someone will cause it to stop, will cause these things to stop. And the word pao is in the middle voice, which means that it's a self-causing action. In other words, it is something that will stop by itself. So I realize that this is kind of heavy and you're thinking, what did he just say is possibly what you're thinking right now, right? But it's a little bit technical here, but I want you to understand what he's saying here. He's saying prophecy and knowledge, they're going to be stopped by something outside of themselves. Something is going to cause prophecy and knowledge to be stopped. And the gift of tongues, it will stop by itself. Kind of like it has its own built-in timer. It's just kind of going to run out. It's just going to stop. While love, on the other hand, will never cease. And this is where I understand we're going to 
part ways with some of our uh, some of the churches that that meet, and even in this area, and churches that meet that have a different perspective on what this text says, and it might be a little bit controversial, because some would argue that the gift of tongues has now ceased and is no longer in existence today. Whereas others argue that the gift of tongues is a legitimate, God-given gift today. And some might even argue that it's a necessary gift. A gift that is needed in order for someone to truly be saved. So some argue that the gift of tongues has ceased. And much of that argument, I believe, is based on history and the writings of the early church fathers. Others argue that the gift of tongues is a legitimate gift today. And I think many who argue that are actually arguing from experience. They're not necessarily arguing from the writings of the church fathers or even history, but uh, so much as so their own personal history from experience of what they've, they've lived through. So I am of the persuasion, and I kind of flirted with this a couple of weeks ago and didn't really say where I was going to land. I am of the persuasion that the gift of tongues has ceased today. I am of the persuasion that the gift of tongues has run out. However, I'm not going to make an argument for that from this text. Why? Because the text doesn't say that. The text doesn't say the gift of tongues has ceased. It doesn't even say that come uh, 2016 or 2017 or 2020, by then the gift of tongues will have ceased. It just merely says the gift of tongues, it will just kind of run its course. It'll stop at some point. You see, there's enough meat, I think, from this text to chew on that we don't need to get wrapped up in the debate of what it doesn't say. We don't know from this text that it has indeed ceased. Instead, it says that tongues will at some point simply stop while the other two gifts, prophecy and knowledge, will be stopped by something. So the way I like to visualize this is I, you, know, you think of like a, a timer with sand in it, an hourglass timer with sand in it, and the, there may be a few grains of sand still trickling down through the timer. I don't know where the gift of tongues is still somewhere happening, but it's so, it seems like it's so infrequent and so uncommon today that it, it is indeed running out if it hasn't already completely run out. And the gift of tongues that we see in many charismatic churches, I do not think resembles the gift of tongues that we see in Scripture. And that's not to pick on those churches. That's to say, this is what I think Scripture clearly shows about the gift of tongues. That it will indeed, at some point, just run out. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we need to look back at our text. Look at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 says this, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Notice that the gift of tongues is not mentioned here. Nor is it mentioned again until chapter 14. Verse 9 only talks about prophecy and knowledge. And it says that when the perfect comes, the partial, namely prophecy and knowledge, will be done away. And here we see further evidence that tongues will simply end while prophecy and knowledge will end because of something. And in these verses, 9 and 10, we learn that the something is the coming of the perfect. So what Paul is talking about when he says the perfect, what exactly is he talking about? The word teleon, which simply means perfect, mature, or complete, doesn't really 
tell us for sure. And interpreters have debated this for a long time. There's various opinions. But I think as we move forward, it becomes obvious that he's talking about the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. That he means the, the summation of all things. The, the f- fulfillment of time. That in the eternal state, there will no longer be a need for the gift of prophecy and teaching. And as I think about that, I think, what am I going to do in heaven? Right? If there's no teaching, there's no prophecy, well, what am I going to do? I'm sure God has a plan for us in heaven. But see, there's no need for that anymore because things will have been made perfect. In the eternal state, there will no longer be need for the gifts of prophecy and teaching. Just as a side note, some argue that the perfect is the completion of the Bible. Some would argue that the perfect is the Scripture itself. Some would argue that it's the coming of Jesus. It doesn't seem to make sense in that respect either because it's in the neuter form. Some would argue that it's the completion of the canon. That when the Bible was written, that prophecy and knowledge would be done away. However, I think it's obvious that prophecy and the word of knowledge are essential gifts for the growth of the church. And they're alive and well today in spite of the fact that the canon of Scripture, that Scripture has been completed. So let's look at our text again. Paul makes a statement in verse 9. He says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. And then he goes on to explain that statement in verses 11 and 12. He says, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. Paul contrasts now, and the now is not now as in 2016, but now is in the way things were in Paul's time. He contrasts now with the way things will be then, at some point in the future. Namely, after the perfect comes, at the fulfillment of all things, at the fulfillment of time. He says that through the mirror they now see dimly. They now see in a mirror dimly. That's the gift of prophecy. Being able to understand, apply, and proclaim God's word. We see dimly. Even those with the gift of prophecy. I, sometimes I'll, I'll read scripture and oftentimes I'll be, I'll be reading the text throughout the week again and again and again. And sometimes I'll even say, God, what does this mean? And I'll pray, God, Show me what this means. And I begin to see what it means, but it's, it's dimly. It's like looking through a dirty piece of glass. And I say, show me more clearly. And He shows me more clearly. But I still don't see always perfectly. That's why I can come back to a text a year later and go, oh, I see more clearly. And then a year later, and I go, oh, I see even more clearly. But it's still not perfectly clear. Because I do have the ability to understand, apply, and proclaim God's Word. As do all of us. But it's dimly. We don't see things as clearly as we once will. He also says that though they now have the gift of knowledge, the ability to understand and teach doctrine, their understanding is still incomplete. So we see these things being played out in the fact that we disagree over some things. That there are many different stances on Bible doctrine because we don't always see things clearly. Our understanding is incomplete. Therefore, when we think about the coming of the perfect, we can't say that it has already come. We can't say that it's already become because just, in, just like in Paul's day, the seeing, those who have been given the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge, is partial. Those gifts are partial. 
Though we see today, we see in a mirror dimly. Though we now have the gift of knowledge, we see and think like children. To say that the perfect has already come is to say that we now see and know perfectly. And praise God that even though these gifts are partial, even though we see dimly and our knowledge is childlike, these gifts are a picture of what is to come. You see, they reveal to us a glimpse of what it's really going to be like to see and know in the eternal state. They're just a glimpse of what it's like to understand. So when you stand up, when I stand up here and preach, and I love it when Jackie prays, Lord, help me to just obtain some nugget of truth today. And we walk away with some nugget of truth that this, it's a picture of the eternal state and a, a picture of heaven where we'll see clearly that when we understand 1 Corinthians, we truly understand clearly all of 1 Corinthians, not just some tiny nugget of truth. We're going to see and know perfectly. We get a glimpse of what it will be like in Revelation 21. What it's going to be like to know Jesus, to walk with Jesus, and to understand and know Him more perfectly. That is perfection. In that day, we will no longer need prophecy or the word of knowledge, for we will see face to face, and we will know fully just as we have been fully known. The partial will have been done away, and the perfect will have come. And Paul then, after having compared how things were then, or how things are now in his time, with how things will be when the perfect comes, he gives a final thought on how we are to live until the perfect comes. Look at verse 13. He says, But now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul says that now we are told to hold fast to hope, hold fast to faith, to hope, and to love knowing that the greatest of these is love. See, Paul has already explained that faith and hope are part of love. They're not separate entities per se. Look at verse 13.7. That love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. There we read, love believes all things, and love hopes all things. So faith and hope are bound up together with love, but faith and hope will not be needed in the future. There will be no place for faith or for hope in the new heaven and the new earth because they will have been completed. They'll have been finalized. They'll have been realized. However, love will endure forever and will be an essential element of the eternal state. It will be an essential element of the new heaven and the new earth, that which we have to look forward to. For God Himself is Love, as John, 1 John 4 tells us. So review, in review, we've seen number one, the necessity of love, number two, the nature of love, and number three, the nature of spiritual gifts, that they are temporary and partial, that they serve their purpose this side of heaven, but they will no longer be needed once we are received into heaven, once the perfect has been realized. So the question is, how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically, apply all of this. How do we take this and then apply it to our lives? First of all, if you're here today and you've never experienced the type of love described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, love that is unconditional, love that is self-sacrificing, 
love that exists for the sake of the one being loved, I want you to know above all that you can experience that kind of love today. You can be a recipient of that kind of love. In fact, the perfect example was demonstrated by God himself when he took on the form of a man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, and rose from the grave in your place. Romans 5, 6-8 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is agape love. That is a picture of love for the sake of the one being loved. And as we consider 1 John 4, which I alluded to a second ago, which tells us that God is love, we could actually take 1 Corinthians and we could consider what it would be like to have these things without God. To have these gifts without God. And we would be nothing. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but do not have God, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have God, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have God, it profits me nothing. Why? Because God is the ultimate fulfillment of this kind of love. God is patient. He is kind. He is not jealous. Does not brag or is not arrogant. Does not seek his own. Certainly in a righteous way, he does seek his own. Seeks his own glory. He is not easily provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. God is the fulfillment of this love for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, I just encourage you to know that today is the day of salvation. That Christ died for your sin. That Scripture is plain that every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That it's not by your good works, not by your righteous deeds, that every one of you has fallen short of God's perfect law. But that Christ, not because of you, but in spite of you, loved you he laid down his life for you and he died in your place. The gift is yours and all you need to do is receive it. It's not so much about saying a prayer or walking an aisle. Those things are indications of maybe a response in faith that maybe saying a prayer and saying, Lord Jesus, I do receive you today. That I do recognize my sin and I need a Savior. That that is an indication or should be an indication of a heart change. And it's, a, it's one's com one committing their life to follow Jesus from that point. Forward. And if you'd like to do that, I would encourage you to do that right now in your own words, where you sit. It's not magical. It's about committing from this point forward to following Jesus and trusting in Him and Him alone. But most of us here today are here because we've, we've already done that. We're already seeking to follow Jesus. And if that's the case, I want to ask you, are your actions motivated by love? Do we as a church understand the superiority of love over and above spiritual gifts? As I said, 1 John 4.16 says, We have come to know and have believed the love of God, the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Are we loving each other like we should? Are we loving our community like, our should, like we should? Is it agape love? Is it love 
that's willing to sacrifice? Is it love for the sake of the one being loved? Or is it just feelings of affection? So my question is, when you do special music on Sunday morning, or you empty the trash, or you shovel off the ramp, or you teach, or whatever it is you do, whatever gift God has given you to serve this church, do you do it with agape love? Are you doing it in such a way that you are patient, kind, not jealous, not boastful, not arrogant, not acting unbecomingly, not seeking your own? Are you doing it the way Scripture calls us to do so? In the same way, if you're married, do you love your spouse that way? And if we don't, then maybe we need to ask, do we really know the love of Christ? If I cannot love my church this way, if I cannot lay down my life and be willing to sacrifice my own life for the sake of the believers, the saints here at Harmony, I may not understand, I probably don't understand, what God did for me on the cross. If I can't love my wife in that way, I have a serious misunderstanding of what Christ died for. So are we loving each other like we should? And finally, believer, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged knowing that God has given spiritual gifts that are a partial picture, a glimpse, if you will, of the perfect that is to come. That we teach, that we serve, that we love each other, but we know that it's imperfect. But the perfect is coming. That Christ is coming back and He's going to rescue us from this world which is tainted by sin. So in the meantime, let's use our gifts to demonstrate our love for one another. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. God, I pray that You'd be with us, that You'd encourage us and bless us. God, that You'd help us to love as You have loved. God, help us to recognize that You sent Your Son who laid down His life for us. And God, help us to live in light of that truth. Help us to love each other that way. Help us to use our gifts not for our benefit, but for the benefit of others. Not for our glory, but for Your glory. Not that we may profit, but that the church may be built up. God, I pray and ask for You to work in us and through us. Not because of us, but in spite of us. I pray and ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.